Are you ready? Reclaim, book of Amos. Amos is interesting because Amos is writing to the children of Israel at a time where things are great. Like everything is prospering. There is money flowing in. There is trade. There is merchants. There there is a lot of great stuff happening. The nation of Israel is prospering. Amos is everything is going really really well. And in the midst of that in the midst of that uh, prospering, they forgot one of two things. One, they started taking advantage of the poor to make more money. They got greedy. And then they started mistreating the poor and started pushing them aside, and they began exercising injustice towards their brothers. So God calls Amos, who is a farmer from south of Jerusalem, about 11 miles from a really, really poor area, and he is this poor farmer who shows up on the scene with an attitude, and he's challenging the rich and prominent and careless and materialistic and comfortable Israel. Sounds a lot of fun, right? All right, Amos verse, or chapter 8, starting in 1 through 6. This is our introduction to the book. He says, Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. In it I saw a basket filled with ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. I replied, a basket full of ripe fruit. Then the Lord said, like this ripe fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. Got him. <laughs> see that ripe banana? Guess what? So are you. <laughs> I will not delay their punishment again. In that day, the singing in the temple will turn to wailing. Dead bodies will be scattered everywhere. They'll be carried out of the city in silence. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath to be over and the religious festivals to end so you can go back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. And you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. Then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. My son, I need to preface this by saying my son Canaan is probably the most helpful child in our home. No, it's not probably. He is the most helpful child in our home. He's a wonderful kid with a really, really great heart and undoubtedly gives me the best sermon content out of all of my children, okay? So I want to preface that because I, I, I do, I don't pick on him, but I do share some fun stories with Canaan from time to time. Don't worry, he is compensated very well and he agrees to them because he loves the ice cream afterwards okay so uh, we have an agreement if daddy shares a story you get ice cream and so he's like one ice cream two ice cream three ice cream four right he, he he loves to listen and he loves to figure that out and then you guys do a great job of telling him your dad owes you two ice creams today your dad owes you three ice creams today I appreciate that very very much so um He's a wonderful kid. He's a great, great boy. But the other day, his brother Zadok was walking around the house, and he had a bag of Cheetos, like the Cheeto puffs, right? And he was, he was literally, and I told you about this kid. I, don't, I, can't, I can't wrap my mind around this kid's logic right now. He's walking around, he's taking out a Cheeto, and he's just throwing them. Well, I'm talking through the kitchen into the living room, just tossing Cheetos into the air. And I look at him, and I say, Zadok, Stop! What are you doing? So I go over and I take the bag and I pick up Hansel and Gretel's little trail that he's left, you know, and I put them all back in the bag because 10 second rule, right? And it's kids eating them anyway. So I put them back in the bag and I set the bag down and I went back to doing what I was doing. And then all of a sudden I hear this crunch, 
crunch, crunch, and I turn around and Canaan is walking through the living room and he's throwing Cheetos in the air and his little brother Zadok is walking behind him, stomping on each one of them. And I looked at Canaan and I said, what are you doing? He said, what? I said, you're throwing Cheetos on the floor and your little brother's stomping on them. And he was like, oh, sorry, Dad, I forgot. That's his new one, by the way. He forgets everything, right? Oh, sorry, Dad, I forgot. Dad, I forgot. Dad, I just didn't remember. I, for I forgot. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I, I just forgot, Dad. I'm sorry. And I said, okay, fine. Get the broom. You're cleaning up the floor. And he goes, what? What? I said, clean up the floor. You got Cheetos everywhere. And he said, Zadok did it, and Zadok didn't have to clean up the floor. And here's what I said to him. Help me finish the sentence. Zadok is two. You're seven. You should, you should know better. You should know better than this. He's two and he's throwing Cheetos and I just got after him and you're seven and you're, uh, you're giving him ammo to stomp it all over the house, chuckling the whole time. You should know better. That's the message from Amos by way of God to the children of Israel. When we read the book of Amos, it is, it's nine chapters and 15 verses and nine chapters and 10 verses is all-out judgment. It is complete rebuke. And it has this overtone. That spot right there. And it has this overtone. Here's the overtone. You should know better. You should know better. You've had warning after warning. I have come to you. I have explained it to you. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. I've dropped you off in the promised land exactly as I explained to you it would be. And you are taking advantage of the poor. And injustice riddles your streets. You should know better. Should we contextualize this a little bit? Because it's easy to watch this story unfold from a distance and say, wow, Israel should have known better. But what about us? How many times has God been warning you? Has he been speaking to your heart? Has he been How many times have you got caught? And after getting caught, God's warning you, and God is warning you, and then all of a sudden you, you, you stop for a little while, and then you go back to it again, and she told you she'd leave you the next time she caught you doing it, but you're just that close again, and, and these are warning signs. How many times have you been warned? Do you think you're just going to get away with it? You think you can take advantage of it? What he's saying is you should know better. This is a year one issue, and you're nine years in with Jesus still doing this. You should know better. This is a day one in the promised land warning and prophecy, and you're nine years in, and you're still doing it. This is something you should know better. That's the message, right? So we've broken down this season of Minor Prophets on the case for, wait, 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 yes, the case, for, uh, the case against rebellion the call to repentance, and the covenant of restoration, okay? And all of it is going to revolve around this whole thought. You should know better. If we want to summarize the entire book of Amos, it is in that one sentence. You should, 
should know better. Amos 2, 6 through 16. This is God's case against the rebellion, okay? So God is building his case, and every one of the minor prophets is structured as such. There is this case against your rebellion. He lays it before them. This is how you are rebellious. I'm calling you to repentance, and I have a covenant of restoration for you. So here it is. Amos 2, 6 through 16. This is what the Lord says. Hey, there's a lot here. Hang with me. Hang with me. You didn't come for three verses in a poem, right? Just hang with me. There's a lot here, but it's worth it. If you'll stick to this part, you're going to catch God's case for rebellion. He says, this is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. I've given them warning after warning after warning. I've made it so clear, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in the clothing their debtors put up as security. Can you imagine being a poor person in Israel at this time and you have been swindled into putting up a pair of your sandals as security for food for your family and then you look out and you see some rich guy prancing around a religious festival in your sandals? Can you imagine that? It says you, you lounge in clothing that debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. But as my people watched, I destroyed the Amorites. Though they were as tall as cedars and as strong as oaks, I destroyed the fruit of their branches and dug out their roots. It was I who rescued you from Egypt and led you through the desert for 40 years so you could possess the land of the Amorites. Do you hear that? He's saying, I've already done it. You should know better. I've already delivered you. I've already matched you out. I've already conquered your enemies. I chose some of your sons to be prophets and others to be Nazarites. Can you deny this, my people of Israel? Asked the Lord. Because you caused the Nazarites to sin by making them drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, shut up, so I will make you groan like a wagon loaded down with sheaves of grain. Your fastest runners will not get away. The strongest among you will become weak. Even mighty warriors will be unable to save themselves. The archers will not stand their ground. The swiftest runners won't be fast enough to escape. Even those riding horses won't be able to save themselves. On the day, the most courageous of your fighting men will drop their weapons and run for their lives. You should know better. So much so that I go, Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a passage that I go to um, often. I, I bet you every four months I read this passage because it's a reminder to me, and it's not just a reminder to me now, but it's a reminder to me that the children of Israel received this clear warning from God and they chose to do the opposite, and you see the consequences for their sin. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20. This is one to tuck away and remind yourselves of often. It says, but this is the time to be careful. 
So they ju- just got done wrapping up what it looked like to enter the promised land. You'll enter and there'll be land flowing with milk and honey and you'll have beautiful homes and peace on all your borders and everything will be great. And he says, but this is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. By the way, the children of Israel had this passage memorized. They already knew this passage. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so you will never say to yourselves, make sure this never comes out of your mouth. I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. I am a self-made man. Look at what I've built for myself. Look at what I've done by my hard work. Look at what I have achieved. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful. In order to fulfill the covenant he commanded, he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you of this. Listen to this. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. Just as the Lord Lord has destroyed other nations in your path, you also will be destroyed if you refuse to obey the Lord your God. God, could it be any clearer? Could it, I mean, could it be any clearer? Could it make any more sense? And yet, what did they choose over and over and over? Their own materialism, their own selfish indulgence, their own way of living and doing their own thing to satisfy their own wants. They ignored the warnings. My baseball coach who, he's, he's one of my favorite people in the world. He, he became a father figure to me. He's a man, he smoked three packs of cigarettes a day, drank a two liter of Diet Coke a day, and was a lifelong Democrat. He was a ton of fun. He, I mean, he had this jug that like had this handle. It, it, was, it looked like a, just a giant, and he'd fill that thing up full with a two liter of Diet Coke in the morning, and by evening, he'd wrap up that two liter. I mean, that was his jam, just smoked nonstop. He used to pick me up and take me to practice, drop me off at home. He'd pick me up in the winter. We'd go get a sonic drink, and he'd just chain smoke cigarettes and talk to me about everything from business to life to unions to everything else. And I just loved feeling like, a, you know, like he cared. He was just, he was such a cool guy. And I remember he took me fishing one time at Spring Hill Lake to, to catch catfish. And we were sitting there, and as we were all fishing, and, and he, you know, he, his son, and I were all there, and we had all these poles in the ground. He had his giant, he was just burning through cigarettes, right? Just, just burning through. Three, three puffs, and that thing was gone. He'd be on another one, right? And I looked at him, and I said, you know those things will kill you, right? And he said, no, no. 
All right, now I'm fine. Right, by the way, when it comes to smoke, people ask me, like, will I go to hell if I smoke cigarettes? I tell them, you won't go to hell, you'll just smell like it, right? That's the only thing. You'll just, you'll just smell like hell. Right? Cigarettes won't send you to hell, but you're going to smell a lot like hell, okay? Um, so I said, do you know those things will kill you, right? And he said, no, no way. No way. And I, I picked up, I remember this, I picked up his box of cigarettes, Marble Reds. I mean, this dude didn't play around, right? Picked up these cigarettes, and I started to read the Surgeon General's warning on the side of it. And as I was reading it, he said, whoa, 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 shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I said, what? He said, don't read me that. I don't want to hear all that. I said, why not? He said, because if I don't hear it, I don't have to worry about it. It doesn't work that way. Listen, it doesn't work that way. You cannot pretend like the warning doesn't exist. Don't get me wrong. It's highly convenient, right? It is convenient. Oh, I, I didn't realize what I was doing. I forgot, right? That's it. I just, I just forgot. I don't. It's very, very convenient. The problem is it doesn't work. And it doesn't work over and over and over again. That's the message of God and the case against rebellion when it comes to the children of Israel. He is saying these warnings that I'm giving you, if you don't heed them, there's going to be consequences, okay? So then he rolls into the call to repentance. Amos 5, 4 through 15. says, now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. Circle that. It's a theme that continues to reoccur. Don't worship at the pagan altars of Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal and Beersheba. From the, for the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile, and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Again, come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames. Your tw you twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. With blinding speed and power, he destroys the strong, crushing all their defenses. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depths of your rebellion. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut, for it is an evil time. Do what is good and run from evil, third time, so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. He's calling them back to life. And in order to call them back to life, he has to call them out of their selfish indulgence. 
He has to call them out of their materialistic lusts and desires. He has to call them out of their oppression of the poor to gain more, get more, and become more prominent. What he's doing is he is saying, if you really want to experience life, quit living for yourself and come back and live for me. And how does he finish it? And then, maybe then, the God of heaven's armies will have enough mercy for you when the end comes. William Borden was a missionary. Actually, his story starts in 1904. He, uh, was a, he was the heir of the Borden family fortune, not the milk, the silver mines. And they were worth millions and millions and millions of dollars in 1904. That is billions and billions and billions of dollars today, right? So William Borden graduates from high school, and when he graduates from high school, he, his parents gave him a trip around the world. They gave him, for his, for his high school graduation, wouldn't that be cool? Like, here, here's a trip around the world. Enjoy Asia, the Middle East, Europe. So he goes on this trip, and as on this trip, he experiences poverty like he had never seen before in his life. So he comes back from the trip, and he tells his family, I feel called to become a missionary. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> you're, you're heir to millions and millions and millions of dollars, and you want to go be a missionary? They said, hey, why don't you go to college first? Hopefully that will fix you, and then come back. So he went to Yale, right? Casual, let's go to Yale. So he, he goes to Yale. And as a freshman at Yale, he starts a Bible study, and 300 of his classmates start attending. By his senior year at Yale, 1,000 of the 1,300 students were attending one of his Bible studies. So his ministry is just booming. Afterwards, he graduates from Yale, turns on many super high-paying jobs, and as he turns them down, his parents come to him, and he tells them again, I still want to be a missionary. And they were like, you're crazy. And he said, I'm going to go to Princeton Seminary to prepare me for the mission field. Again, casually, right? I'll just, Princeton. So he goes to Princeton Seminary, and he starts studying at Princeton Seminary to prepare for the mission field. And once he finishes, he feels called to Muslims in China. So he gets on a ship, and he sails to Egypt first because he wants to learn Arabic while he's in Egypt. And when he's in Egypt, he contracts final meningitis, and within a month, he dies. 25 years old. Dies within a month. News of this story, when it got back to the U.S., it was, it was literally picked up by every newspaper in America. And here is what uh, Taylor says in the beginning of her biography on Borden. She says, a wave of sorrow went round the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself. And he did it in a way that was so joyous and natural that it seemed to him a privilege rather than a sacrifice. He found out what life was. He figured out what life was. And it wasn't inheriting millions of dollars, and it wasn't having everything you wanted and dreamed for and living for yourself. It was giving your life away in such a way that is so joyous and so excited and so submitted that everyone around you looks at you and thinks you're doing it as an opportunity or an offering and not out of sacrifice. This is life, and this is what Amos through God, or God through Amos, is calling the children of Israel back to. He's not saying, earn more, make more, achieve more, build more, conquer more. He's saying, leave it all and come back to life. That is life. You realize, we were not designed, called, or sustained to satisfy ourselves. 
We have not been designed, we are not called, and we are not sustained by self-gratification, by earning more, making more, building more, conquering more, and achieving more. That's not how we're sustained. What does Paul say? Let your life become a what? Living sacrifice. Jesus says you want to become great? Become a servant. You want to become great? Become a servant. You want to find your life? Lose it. Let it go. What does it benefit a man to achieve the whole world and lose his? You're with me. You're with me. The call to repentance was to leave it and give your life away. To leave everything that you've built, everything that you've accomplished, all the peace and prosperity and wonder that you have at your fingertips to give your life away. And now we get to out of nine chapters and ten verses, five final verses of hope. You get the message? You get the message? Like, if you just read the book, what is it about? Nine chapters and 15 verses, and nine chapters and ten verses are straight judgment. You are missing the sign. You should, okay, here's the final five verses. Amos 9, 11 through 15. It says, in that day, I will restore the fallen house of David. Very interesting word choice. He didn't say tabernacle. That is a wonderful, beautiful, well-built place for God. He said house. And if you translate this in Hebrew, he's saying like shack or shanty or small, little, broken down, nothing. So he's saying, I will restore what has been broken down. I will restore what has been destroyed. Here you go. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken and he will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Isn't that beautiful? The harvest season will overlap the sowing season. There won't be any, any mixture in between. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens and they will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. G.K. G. Campbell Morgan, who's a, a theologian on the Old Testament, particularly in the Minor Prophets, he says uh, that, that these final five verses, he said if the book of Amos did not include the last five verses of the book, it would be incomplete. And he said it would be incomplete and nearly unreadable to the reader. Why? Because he says you see from the first nine chapters and ten verses, the reason for God's judgment was his longing heart's desire to restore the order of his heart, which is relationship with his people. He said it, it is the only thing that we should be focused on when we read through the book, is all of this judgment and all of this challenge and all of this difficulty arrives at one place, and that is the redemption. That is the covenant of restoration. I'm a, uh, a big, I did it again. That's hot. I'm a big, big brother fan. Does that even make sense? I should know. You should know better. Thank you, Rigo. 
There it is, that I should know better. You're right. I'm just, I'm just living the sermon right here before you, right? Um, yeah, big, big brother fan. Anybody else? I know my in-laws and family are here. Yes, I mean, big brother, of course. Introduced me to big brother. Um, love big brother. August 5, I hear it's coming back. I'm super excited for it. If you're not watching big brother, you've got a TV show to binge. And you've got like 30 seasons to do so, so go back and watch them. But here's what happens with big brother. Big brother starts and then the football season kicks off. And when the football season kicks off, the, the Sunday night episode of big brother follows a football game. Okay, so what would happen was if the football game ran over, then you would, you would record it on, on DVR, right? But the problem was if the football game ran over, the DVR didn't adjust. So the football game would run into Big Brother, and my TV would start recording right at the start of Big Brother, but it would be the football game. So at the very end of Big Brother, guess what happens? Anybody else been there? Oh, I mean, how annoying right? Drives me insane. So I'll be watching it and Julie Chen will come on there and it's time for someone to be voted off and the house guests have submitted their vote and after they've submitted their vote, she says, now house guests, a reminder, the house guests with the most votes is to immediately grab their belongings and leave the house. Are you ready for the vote? And they're sitting there and the two are in the middle red chairs and, they're, and you're just like, you're itching to find out what happens. And she says, by a vote of and it stops. I'm like, what? No, like, come on, Julie. Come on, Julie. And then it just goes right into 60 minutes. And I'm like, what? How does... So then you're left and you're like searching Twitter, trying to find out who got voted off, trying to picture the whole thing in your mind. And it's so annoying. I, I literally am like, I don't even want to watch this show anymore. Because it just takes me up to this point and it drops me off. It stops right there. That's what happens with the book of Amos if we stop at verse 10. But the greatest hope in the world are the final five verses. And here is the message today, contextually, of the final five verses. That God is not going to leave you in your mess. God is not going to leave you in the disaster. The story is not incomplete. In fact, the story is complete. The narrative is finished. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended to be with the Father. And the Holy Spirit has come to fill us and indwell us until Jesus comes again. Our story is not over and God doesn't leave us in our mess. The message of Amos is this. You should know better. The message of Jesus is this, even though you don't, I rescue you. Even though you don't, I'm here. Even though you don't, I make you right with God. 